0: My guest is Mujtaba Rahman. Mujtaba Rahman is the Managing Director, Europe, and co-head of the London office of the Eurasia Group. Welcome to the podcast, Midge. Thanks for having me, Paul. Right. We're going to use the next 20, 25 minutes for me to kind of pick your brains on the most important challenges facing the European Union in the, in the coming year and how effective you think Europe's leaders will be in dealing with these challenges. So in no particular importance, could you give me some of your top concerns about what the EU has to face in 2024?
1: Sure. So European elections uh, take place on the 6th to 9th of June. There's a lot of talk in the ecosystem about the emergence of populist or the reinforcement rather or the strong performance of populist parties in that context. That's not a concern. For us at Eurasia Group, it was one of our red herrings, actually, in our top risk for the year, which means it's something everybody is incredibly concerned about and motivated by. But but we do not believe that risk is warranted or that concern is warranted. The challenge to my mind this year is the impact uh, populist parties doing well will have on incumbent governments. Right and how weakened incumbents is actually the risk for the EU this year. And I would point to two examples, that I'm sure we'll talk about this in more detail, Uh, in particular Emmanuel Macron, who's polling around 10 points behind Le Pen, his centrist alliance, and um, uh, the wobbly coalition in Germany, Olaf Scholz's team. So I think both of those leaders will emerge from the European elections week, and that I think will ultimately create lots of challenges for the EU for the remainder of the year. So that's one major challenge. And well,
0: in terms of these challenges at the national level, does it mean that uh, the incumbents, as you call them, have to make more of an effort to 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 counteract these populist tendencies? Or is there a, a danger like we've had in the UK, historically, of the centre-right parties in government kind of attacking to the right to kind of take over the clothes of these populist parties?
1: I think, Paul, the challenge with Macron and Schultz is actually broader. I think if you look at the state of domestic politics in both France and Germany, both leaders are, are already struggling quite significantly. If you think about Macron, um, he has a minority government, is, um, I forget the exact number, but substantial number short of a majority in the right. National Assembly. I remember correctly, it's in the region of 60 or 70, has been looking to build an alliance with the Republicans to deliver a majority and has been focused on legislative initiatives that the LR can support, such as pension reform and immigration law reform. But the Republicans are looking to challenge for the Elysée in 2027, and so have no incentive to deliver Macron a majority. And we saw the fallout on pension reform as the government used constitutional provisions, Article 49.3, to get the reform enacted without a vote in parliament. There was a lot of fallout, street protests, anger in parliament, et cetera. All that subtracted from Macron's authority Uh, Immigration law reform did get through, but ultimately with the support of Le Pen's Rassemblement National, which she claimed was an ideological victory for the far right. Now, Macron has sought to address these challenges by appointing Gabriel Attal very young prime minister, 34 years old, former budget minister and government spokesman. But I think Catal's appointment is also an admission by Macron that there are limits to what he can achieve in the context of a minority government. And so he's attempting to move on to what I describe as a gentler phase of his presidency, one that's less focused on economic reform and more focused on rebuilding trust in France and France's institutions. Now, I'll, I'll get to the major point, which is... Yeah. Atal's objective in the short term is going to be closing this 10-point gap with Le Pen in the run-up to European elections. I think that's going to be very, very hard to do. And so there's a real question here about Macron's judgment in implementing the reshuffle ahead of European elections. If there's a chance, as many people in the French system believe, Atal's tenure may be over before it's even started, assuming Le Pen does as well as she does in European elections. You know, Macron's poll, just to put this into context, Macron's performing... Only two points worse than he did in 2019, so the result for his centrist alliance compared to the vote in 2019 isn't bad. But if he does come ten points below Le Pen, that will be seen as a as a as a de facto referendum on the midway point of his second term, and will further subtract from his authority and I think his ability to to lead the EU and, and and focus on all the challenges the Europeans are facing this year.
0: To what extent are these domestic challenges and this domestic focus getting in the way of, of Macron and France playing this traditional leadership role in the European Union? And, and how serious, as a corollary to that question, Lij, how serious are these reports that Macron and Schultz, Germany, do not get on, or that's that slightly overstating what are the reality?
1: So, Paul, I think um, the, the challenge i think for the eu this year you know there are a number of challenges the first among equals is the risk of a trump presidency right and if trump is elected in particular what does he do regarding nato and the us's commitment to european security as reflected in article 5 that is a major strategic question the the consequences of the us withdrawing from nato you know empty chair they don't turn up they begin to pour troops from the continent. They, they begin to signal ambivalence towards European security. The consequences of that are fairly profound and quite existential. And so, if you have a situation where you have a weakened Macron at home and you don't really have a partner in Germany, how does the EU organize a collective and a coherent response? Now, it's not all about France and Germany. Mm. Uh, but I do think, you know, if you if we, if we spend a minute just thinking about what's happening in Germany, uh, we do have a weak Chancellor. He is a poor communicator, Olaf Scholz. He doesn't have a very strong European identity or agenda or ambition. And Paul, as we saw at the end of last year, the coalition has now effectively had to renegotiate its coalition treaty oh. because... The Constitutional Court has ruled that the way in which the government was financing many of its most important strategic objectives is actually unconstitutional. So the government last year was forced to cut around between 17 to 20 billion from the budget for this year. That's 0.5 percent of GDP. To put that into context, Paul, what you've got is a German economy that's slowing, effectively entering a recession, and as it's entering a recession, because of these insane uh, uh, fiscal rules, is being forced to implement a fiscal tightening, so a pro-cyclical adjustment on the teeth of a recession in the largest economy in the EU, which absolutely no sense. You've got three partners in the coalition that don't agree on anything, and when you've got three ideologically Divergent partners in a coalition. The thing that makes everything easier is money. Now they Mm. don't have money. They're having to cut from the budget and they'll have to cut from the budget again this year for next year. And so I think that the fiscal picture in Germany, the incoherence of the coalition, the performance of the AFD, you know, 25 to 30 percent in some regional states will perform very well in the third quarter in three regional elections. They have 11 MEPs in Brussels. They're likely to perform incredibly well in the context of the European elections. Mm-hmm. All of that will suck from Olaf Scholz's authority, credibility and agency in the EU. And so you've effectively taken off the domino board both Macron and Scholz. right? Yeah. Lots of people are looking at Poland, Donald Tusk. You know, he was recently re-elected in Poland, former European Council president, as you'll know, lots of expectations around potentially him filling this vacuum. I don't think Tusk will be in a position to do that either, because they've got a really difficult domestic agenda. They're trying right. to undo the influence of peace from all governmental state institutions. They have a president, Andre Duda, who's aligned with the outgoing Party, uh, the Conservative Law and Justice Party, who's effectively threatening to and is vetoing reform legislation. The government's putting. How forth. important
0: are those uh, presidential vetoes uh, and just a b- b- bare obstructionism by by Duda? Is it uh, just a kind of slightly plain to the gallery, or they are serious power that he has to to thwart? No, Tusk's these are huge, ambitions?
1: hugely serious powers, and he's in place until the end of next year. So that's effectively the first two years of Tusk's term means it's very hard for him to implement reform that requires legislation because of this presidential veto. Now, Brussels will get around the president's constraints and begin to release some cohesion and recovery funds to Poland because they want to reward Donald Tusk. They want to support the Polish economy. But the the point, Paul, is I think Tusk has a very defensive agenda in Brussels. It's about extracting some of this financing, and then it's about... Overcoming Duda's veto to the extent that's possible and reforming these domestic institutions. So it's a domestic and looking agenda. To the extent Tusk has said things about Brussels, you know, it's not been particularly constructive. He says he wants to uh, re-engage in the Weimar format, so with France and Germany. However, uh, the, the 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 you know the kind of the primary mode of engagement with Brussels will not be through weimar and through with the e will not be through weimar it will be through a set of alliances with scandinavian economies in the baltics who share poland's concerns about russia and part part of that is driven by domestic political constraints Tusk cannot afford to be seen as subordinate to germany right. in the ring to european elections because there is a very strong current of anti-EU sentiment both in parliament and with the public and Tusk has to somehow play to that gallery you know other indications of how these constraints are impacting his position in the EU he's saying things like he's not a big champion of the recent reform of the EU's asylum system he's not in the market for major institutional reform when it comes to the enlargement prospectus I think as far as, as, as I, I believe, as far as the current news cycle goes, Poland is still unilaterally uh, blockading Ukrainian grain and its entry to the single market. I mean, these are these are things the peace government was doing. I, you know, I think there's a question here about Tusk. He's showing a lot of ambition domestically. He needs to show the same level of ambition towards the EU. And at the moment, there's a bit of a disconnect there. Um, we can talk about yeah. Italy and Spain and others, Paul, but I think the major point is in this vacuum of leaders, it you know, to the extent there aren't leaders in the European Council capable of leading the EU into that vacuum we've had von der Leyen.
0: Yeah.
1: But of course, now we're running into European elections and she's also seeking her re-election. And so, you know, from April until November. Her fate will also be uncertain. It's highly likely she'll be re-elected. But she's also not in a position this year, I think, to assume that kind of leadership position and fill the vacuum she has been doing over the last several years. But
0: if she gets a second term, which, and you're saying that this power vacuum at the in in the key uh, member states uh, and around the European Council table, does that not mean that once she's secured this second term, we assume... That she will have uh, by the end of the year. That she has, in a sense, she has to make. She makes a virtue out of necessity. She's like, I won't. I won't expect or look for direction or leadership from my uh, the member states. I will just get on and do these because that's. I have no other option, and that might suit her agenda.
1: I think. poor yes, but I, I think. Look, to my mind, the problem is the mandate for VDL in a second term is going to be a lot more challenging than the first. Right. You know, the first term response was mobilizing. She did. She did. You know, I don't wish to undermine or or downplay rather her achievements. She did a lot. The economic policy response to COVID was incredibly meaningful in terms of the recovery and resilience facility, the seven. You know, the 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 overall next generation EU seven fifty billion etc. That was a that was a that was a major policy win, I think, for her and for Europe. Uh, the initial response to russia's invasion of ukraine was remarkable on sanctions the european perspective mobilizing financing uh, you know corralling the member states to to respond in a coherent way the problem i think going forward is those challenges become much more difficult right i mean what is the game plan for ukraine the battlefield is stuck there is major concern about us aid whether 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 it's trump or indeed biden Commitments to Ukraine financially. USA, there are tremendous headwinds in that regard from Congress. There's a massive question about what Europe can do if America stops providing the kind of stuff the Ukrainians need to fight the war. You know, Europe just doesn't produce this stuff, either at pace or the volume required to enable Ukraine to you know, need, you know, the stuff Ukraine needs to fight the war short term, Europe just doesn't produce, doesn't have the capacity to produce it, doesn't produce it, the volume or the pace that is required by the Ukrainians in the context of the battlefield. And so there's a major question here, right? Everyone's waiting until November to see whether it's Trump or not. But, you know, the actual war, the battlefield is stuck. And there 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 remains major concerns about providing Ukraine more aid, the risks of escalation you know, remain a concern in the chancellery and elsewhere. And so at some point, this discussion is ultimately going to move to a negotiation. That negotiation is ultimately going to require and and will, will, will ultimately, I think, necessitate some form of uh, territorial concession by the Ukrainians, probably for you know, the, the card that I imagine will be played and what's being discussed in Berlin and elsewhere is NATO membership. As the quid pro quo for Ukraine effectively giving up parts of its territory, it will not be able to win back because it's not being equipped to win back that territory. So that's a very difficult discussion for von der Leyen to manage.
0: So You've mentioned a number of points there, including the Polish grain blockade, if you like, or ban, as well as the capacity of Europe to to provide munitions, you use that generic term, uh, plus... Maybe you're hinting at signs that the EU, the E27 are showing signs of telltale signs of less unity now. How to handle Ukraine? And but as as we speak now, do you think the the Europeans as a whole, as a group, the E27 uh, have taken on the responsibility to, to realizing they should raise their game in their broad approach to Ukraine, both in terms of providing munitions, funding, because it seems to me be that before we start talking about getting around the negotiating table for some kind of so-called Peace settlement. There's there's work to be done now.
1: No, no. Well, so, so look, Paul. I think European European support for Ukraine is effectively in a holding pattern really? this year. Yes, I mean the 50 billion will likely get done at the February European Council. Uh, leaders have figured out a way to overcome Orban's veto, and so yes, that facility will lock in financial support for Ukraine until 2027. But it's not enough. Right. I mean, the 50 billion, I believe the IMF estimates, I'm not sure whether these numbers are public, the fiscal gap for Ukraine, I believe this year is in the order of 35 to 40 billion potentially. And so the 50 billion commitments to 2027 are absolutely not enough. right? Right. I mean, a lot more is going to be needed, but it's very difficult to have that discussion among member states today when just getting agreement on the 50 billion is proving so contentious, so you know, more money will be needed, but yes, the 50 billion will, will be agreed. It's also true that the European perspective has been opened, accession session negotiations will likely start this year, but that's the beginning of an incredibly challenging process. And there is still no agreement within the EU as to whether Ukraine will actually ever join. Yes, the process has started, but between here and ultimate Ukrainian membership, a lot needs to happen, including major reform internally, within the EU for which there doesn't seem to be many buyers, right? Many countries aren't in the market for major reform of the EU. And then that, of course, begs the question, if you're not going to reform the EU, can Ukraine ever join? Because the implications of Ukraine joining are so existential for incumbent countries. And so, you know, the the accession process and that perspective is going to be incredibly challenging and very political.
0: Sorry, therefore, in the broader, sorry, stepping back, the broader enlargement process, then, not just Ukraine, but the other candidate countries with different statuses, of course. Um, is there a danger, therefore, that on the one hand, uh, it'll take up a huge amount of uh, bandwidth, as they say, uh, from the institution, especially the European Commission, on the one hand, but at the same time, against a backdrop, a political level, where there's not a, not a huge enthusiasm for member states. So we go through the motions of this exercise in great detail and huge amount of resources allocated to discussing accession of these different countries, not just Ukraine, only to find that the member states themselves aren't really enthusiastic about it anyway.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely the risk. I mean, there's a lot, you know, I think, you know, there's, it's still, uh, there's a lot of currency politically from being seen to be a Ukraine champion and so I think I think part of this is legacy building by von der Leyen, by Charles Michel, by Macron, by Schultz. None of these leaders are going to be in the position of power well, to ultimately right. execute this decision. So they've got really no incentive not to support
0: right. the okay.
1: process. Yeah. But whether they actually, you know, whether this actually ultimately results in membership, I think a priori is to be seen. And so, Paul, that's why I don't mean to jump to the conversation around. How is the war ultimately going to be resolved? But I don't think more financial support from Europe is coming this year beyond the 50 billion. I don't think massive progress will be made on the accession negotiations. That process will start. It will be very incremental, very slow, three steps forward, two steps back kind of thing. On munitions, the EU is clearly struggling because of industrial capacity constraints, political willingness concerns about what's happening in the US and so that's why i say for ukraine you know we are in something of a holding pattern everybody is kind of waiting to see what happens in the elections in the us in november not least vladimir putin right and once the once the outcome of the us presidential election is clear i think there is going to be a moment where people look at the status of the battlefield the fact ukraine isn't making progress the fact the russians are dug in and and ultimately make a determination and russia
0: has more resources obviously
1: yeah and a decision around whether the war can be won and if not that all sides need to get around the negotiating table now of course the formulation remains it's for president zelensky to decide but actually of course it's not The, 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 the the question is to what you know what is the political appetite willingness or otherwise in america to continue supporting Ukraine to fight the war. And I think there are major challenges within the US system doing that long-term, whether it's Biden or indeed Trump. And so at some point, I think, you know, our top, one of our top risks, Paul, for the year is partitioned Ukraine. You know, yeah. this negotiation is coming. And if, and if the intellect, you know, the, 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 the logical intellectual conclusion from a lack of willingness, either from the EU or the Americans to support Ukraine militarily, to take back territory, is ultimately a negotiation that involves concessions, probably for NATO and EU membership.
0: All right, in this rapid tour d'horizon, let's move on then to Europe's economy. As you know, uh, in the next few months, there'll be two, uh, in principle, rather major reports, one by Enrico Letta, the former Italian prime minister on the single market, and followed three months later, I'm gathered by Mario Draghi, another former prime minister of Italy, on Europe's competitiveness. What's the state of Europe's economy, and how concerned are you about it?
1: We're concerned. Look, I think the bigger, I start again with Germany. You know, on the heels of a recession, they are implementing and tightening fiscal policy because they're having to cut from future budgets given this constitutional court ruling. So there's no money domestically within Germany. And if there's no, no money domestically in Germany, it means there's not going to be a lot of money for the EU. And so all of these initiatives, the Draghi report, the the, the Enrico letter report, Uh, on competitiveness etc i mean ultimately they're going to require financing at the european level to support some of these competitiveness and reform goals and i just don't think germany is in that situation politically or fiscally to be able to deliver meaningful money to war and so i think the outlook for the euro area economy is quite challenging and um, the performance of all the major economies is okay not particularly strong if you look at italy they have incredibly optimistic growth forecasts for this year those growth forecasts will not be realized right as those forecasts are not realized there will inevitably be more fiscal slippage Uh, the markets will look closely at the degree of fiscal slippage and then they will make a determination as to whether they're willing to continue funding italy and at what interest rate and so you know, France, if you look at France, Paul, unemployment, you know, this was a landmark commitment for Macron to deliver full employment 5.5% by 2027. If you look at the Bank de France projections now for unemployment in France, it's ticking upwards. That's to do with lots of different reasons, not least the slowdown in China, but you do have, you know, major concerns about increasing unemployment. You know, it's going to, it's heading to the 7% level and potentially beyond in France. And so, there are major concerns about fiscal situation in germany the unemployment situation in france italy is always one or two steps from a potential debt crisis given the level of its debt uh, low productivity low trend growth and the fact georgia malone you know they don't really have an economic plan beyond implementing the recovery facility recovery and resilience facility in italy and so the outlook is quite challenging and how um, how
0: important is the is the this discussion which seems to be going on all the time about the reform of the the Eurozone rule, the growth and stability pact. That seems to be always there, but without any kind of conclusion, unless I'm totally missing the point.
1: No, so there is now, they've agreed to a new in the council in December, there was an agreement on a new framework. The framework makes no sense. I mean, the, The commission's original idea was we need a set of fiscal rules that enable more borrowing for investment purposes, that Give high debt member states incentives to reform. And if they implement structural reforms, they get a longer period of time to implement their debt reduction, to, to simplify, make the rules more transparent. You know, if you think about the 360% Maastricht convergence criterion when they were negotiated, it was for another era. And ultimately, I think what's happened is largely because of Germany and partly because of France, we've ended up with a set of rules that don't really make any economic sense. There are slight, perhaps, you know, the most generous interpretation will be there are very slight improvements on the old framework, but not much. Okay. Not
0: much. All right, we're going to we'll come at the end of this chat. We've, through, we've covered so much ground, which I'm going to use the last question to ask you about EU-UK cooperation. Um, there's a general election in Britain, of course. Uh, later on this year, that's not a prediction; that's a fact. Um, what do you think is going to happen in the next few months in terms of even before this side of the election, and how, it, in where, in sort of specific, concrete terms, you see this cooperation uh, taking place more more seriously?
1: Paul, well, this is probably one area where I'm much more optimistic than consensus. Oh, you know, you know, Peter Foster and Ivan Rogers and 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 all of the others that are yeah. in, you know engaged in this discussion who are m- uh, more pessimistic than I am, I think, about the the potential of EU-UK relations under Labour. So we're at 90% Labour government, forming okay. in November, okay. 70% absolute majority, um, 20% minority government.
0: This is what you're advising your clients, 90% yes. Labour 90% Labour. Okay. We've been in
1: 90 for a very long time. No one's paying attention to the Tories rightly anymore, Paul, because they're... Um, you know, they're they're basically destroying themselves. Sunak has had a terrible start to the year. He would I think he was hoping that the election year would focus mind, you'd have more party discipline, the economy's improving. Um, and you know, uh, that that you know, there'd be a perhaps slightly more coherent party that would potentially facilitate this narrow path to victory his campaign advisor keeps talking about but obviously unity is falling apart over rwanda the polls are terrible and they keep widening and it's true that the economic outlook is improving ever so slightly you know inflation is coming down interest rates are falling uh, but people don't really feel i'd argue you know the benefits of that improving economy they'll try and implement two 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 goes of tax cuts in a march budget in a I I suspect, November, early November fiscal statement, but I just don't think it's going to be enough to turn the picture around. So Labour will win. We feel very confident about that. Now, I'm very confident about UK-EU relations under Labour, Paul, for a number of structural reasons first, and then a a number of just kind of, uh, you know, uh, the way things will work. So what are the structural reasons? First, Ukraine. I think Ukraine is going to completely change the way the eu deals with third countries i think the barnier staircase is on that staircase ukraine is a different model and so don't listen to people like Michel barnier when we think about the relationship between the eu and third countries going forward because ukraine is going to revolutionize that process and very far-sighted officials here in brussels in dg near in the eas and the council and the commission are already thinking about ways in which ukraine will need to be incrementally integrated into the eu because integrating ukraine in one go has so many profound implications for incumbent countries that will never happen in that way and so there is a new template or model here that the uk over the long-term, so a second Labour term or a third Labour term, could engage with. I think that's really important. And people will say, oh, no, rubbish, it's too theoretical, who knows what's going to happen with Ukraine, etc. All oh, correct, but the point remains, the Barnier staircase is a thing of the past, and Ukraine is going to smash that staircase, I think, and, and create do, models for engagement. Do you, do,
0: you, do you mean, then, to interrupt you, that you, we should stop talking about different, you know, rather esoteric and rather kind of academic discussions about types of membership, associate membership, concentric circles, different speeds. Exactly. Is, we just start... Re- we just think about the whole idea of collaborating in a wholly different new way
1: correct correct All correct right. and i think ukraine will create that basis paul and then there's a question about whether the uk want the a uk government understand wants to engage in the opportunities and possibilities that ukraine's accession creates for third countries so that's one the second is the geopolitical context now i think is completely different and the uk has a massive card to play in terms of its foreign and security, policy, uh, kind of credibility, it's nuclear deterrent, the capability, if it's military, it's strategic culture. These are things the EU misses. These are things France misses. And this is a a vacuum and a card the UK can plug and play. That is, I think, gonna be meaningful for the EU. Now, I'm not suggesting there's a trade-off between the UK doing more on the foreign policy side and the EU giving more on the economic side, but it is true that many countries the french in particular miss that dialogue with the uk strategically over these types of issues and if you think about the world and the context wherein israel gaza russia's invasion ongoing invasion of ukraine the potential of a trump presidency all of these things and that geopolitical context make this card the uk has to play all the more compelling and meaningful this paul i think is so important this point because you know, very senior French officials and others will now say uh, the geopolitical context and the UK's military assets make us want the UK to engage with the EU in a slightly different way. They're not obsessed with the EU-level relationship anymore. What they want is the bilateral relationship to be dealt with first. And assuming the bilateral relationship is constructive and productive and fruitful, that will create a more constructive, for example, France at the European level. And so... The the I think the context the geopolitical context, the impact that's having on the nature of engagement that EU is now seeking, I think is fundamentally different from twenty sixteen.
0: Sorry, but that happened, of course, irrespective of who's in power in government in the UK. I just, what would what, what would a Labour government bring, which uh, current government do, would, does not bring?
1: Well, I think, number one, there won't be a ceiling on, you know, there is a ceiling on, they like Sunak, the EU, but they recognise the party's mad and there's a ceiling in mm. terms of how ha- far he can go. Starmer's problem will be the opposite. Starmer's problem will be the parliamentary party and the membership pushing him to be more ambitious. Right. So the first thing Labour represents compared to the Tories is consistent serious leadership and engagement, not playing political football with the EU in a way that the Tories have done, being willing to lean into the foreign and security policy cooperation in a way that the Tories have not been willing to do because this phantom or this ghost of Brexit looms so large over the party. Anything that looks like they're going back into the EU or cooperating with the EU scares the the hell out of them, so they're not willing to do it. The Labour, Labour Party, I don't think, will have that constraint. And then poor final point is... The EU is not looking for a meta-level renegotiation of the TCA, and nor is Labour. Actually, what the two sides are saying is we should identify a set of issues where there's common interest, where we can collaborate. So ETS and CBAM is one, a mobility agreement, a veterinary agreement, foreign and security policy cooperation. And so what I think you can do is very quickly begin to build constructively relations across a whole set of areas that begins to build this mosaic and this picture of closer collaboration and ties without needing to answer the silly question of, is it customs union or single market?
0: Or even even whether it's a step towards rejoining in the distant future?
1: I mean, all of these things ultimately are going to bring the two sides closer together. Right, right. And Starmer is serious about delivering fastest growth in the G7, given the fiscal constraints given the, the growth constraints in the UK, given what's happening in the world, at some point, I believe that question of institutional links will come back into view. May may not be in the context of a first term, but maybe a second or a third term.
0: Okay. Well, we have to leave it there. Uh, we have covered a huge amount of ground in 30 minutes. Uh, Mushtaba Rahman, thank you very much for your time.
1: Thank you, Paul. Thanks for having me.